Uh, well, good morning. Uh, my name is Jacob Smith. I am the teaching pastor for our college ministry here at Anderson. Uh, there's a few of us hanging in there. That's right. Graduation took place a little while back, but you know there's the remnant. God says he always saves some. And we are here. Uh, every once in a while I get a chance to pop over here with you guys. And man, it is, it's my joy, it's my privilege, it's an honor to be able to come, to break out of my 18 to 22 age bracket uh, and come hang out with y'all. And uh, I'll tell you, we're excited for this season uh, because summer is upon us, right? I don't know if you realize this. You can, you can actually, it is faster to drive down Bush at 5 p.m. than walk now. Uh, and that means that summer is fast approaching. And we were excited. We're excited here at Grace to use this season uh, to give Brian Fisher, our senior pastor, just a little bit more space to redirect some of his energy. And so there's going to be just a a changing uh, number of speakers over the summer. Brian will still be a part of it, but but there's gonna be a lot of other of us guys that are are popping up. Uh, And and we're excited to do that because even as we are changing, even as the speaker is shifting, uh, the focus is going to be consistent. The focus is on leaders. The focus is on biblical historical figures whose lives were used by God in significant ways. Uh, we want to study men and women in our New Testament, not, not because they were perfect, not because they had everything figured out, not because they had every answer, they made every right decision, but because God used them, because they encountered the Lord and they allowed him to, to work through them to accomplish incredible things. And so there is so much that we can learn from their victories as well as their defeats. And so this morning, we're going to be in John chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at the life uh, or is really just a snapshot of the life of a man by the name of Nicodemus, who was a spiritual leader in his time, a renowned teacher, a scholar, a politician in, in a sense. And, and what we're going to see in, in his life, uh, in this snapshot, is a conversation that he has with Jesus Christ. A conversation uh, in which he has to learn a really hard lesson. Uh, a conversation that reveals to him that essentially he was fully dedicated to the wrong direction. He made a mistake that a lot of us, we find ourselves making where we are fully convinced that we're on the right path and yet we completely fail to accomplish what we want to accomplish. We completely fail to make the right decision. And, And suddenly, even though we were moving forward with so much conviction, we were sadly incorrect, uh, the whole time. Charles, Charles, Cajun, Cajun. Millilan and Nanilial. Millilan Ontario. Ontario. Bucket Crunder Dunder. Bucket Crunder Dunder. Frappuccino. Frappuccino. See, here's the truth. We can say something with absolute conviction. Man, we can move forward with just the perfect determination, and yet we will still find ourselves making mistakes, right? We can fully commit and yet completely fail. 
in any endeavor. And the reality is that we can all look back at our lives and we can find these moments. Uh, we can see these times, these seasons where maybe we started with the best of intentions and we had the, just the, the deepest dedication and yet we still were led to the wrong destination, right? We fully committed, but we completely failed. Maybe it was with an investment. Maybe it was something that we thought, man, this is going to pay off financially or this is going to pay off uh, in terms of time or, or some project that's going to be completed, right? Somewhere where they, we invested a lot of effort or energy or, again, financial resources and then it just it doesn't pan out. Right? It doesn't pan out because it was a bad investment. Uh, we maybe find ourselves looking back at relationships where we put in time, energy, effort. We, we made decisions that, that suddenly led us to a place where that relationship isn't what we wanted it to be. We make mistakes. They make mistakes. Circumstances conspire against us. And suddenly we look back and we see failure where we thought we were going to see fruit. Or maybe we look back and we see projects that we had tried to you know, move into for work or for school. Uh, these, these things that, that we hope, man, this is going to be an artifact of my accomplishments. And, and yet the reality is that we make mistakes. Other people make mistakes. Con- circumstances conspire against us. And we don't wind up where we want to be. We completely commit, fully commit, and yet completely fail. We've all found ourselves dedicated to the wrong direction. So what do we do with that? Right? How, how do we move forward beyond that? How, how do we push past those mistakes? How do we, how do we manage the feelings, the senses of, of regret and failure that are inevitable in this life? Well, when we look at this conversation in John chapter 3 between Jesus and the man named Nicodemus, what we'll see is Jesus step into this moment, step into this conversation with Nicodemus, and he's going to essentially change everything about Nicodemus' direction. He's going to change everything about his life. And in this conversation, he's going to bring about this change, not because of, of guilt that he, that he draws on, not because of shame that he heaps upon Nicodemus, but instead he's going to bring this about by bringing grace. Right? That's, that's the key. The grace of God steps into this moment, intercedes, and everything changes. So if you would... Look at John chapter 3. We're going to start at the beginning of the chapter. Verse 1. Here we go. That was not working. Now a certain man, a Pharisee named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish, Jewish ruling council, he came to Jesus at night. All right, so right here at the start of the chapter, we see an introduction of this man, Nicodemus, and we learn a few things about him. John is telling us that he was a Pharisee, right? So in other words, he was a religious leader. But even beyond that, he was uh, part of this ruling council. In other words, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, these, these, these high-level, kind of next-level leaders of the Jewish nation. They, these guys were passing laws, they were making rules, regulations. They were leading the, the nation together in, in this council. And, and he was, in other words, an incredibly prestigious individual. He was accomplished as a scholar, as a leader, and as a teacher. And so he shows up in John chapter 3, verse 1 and verse 2, showing up to Jesus at night. And, and this is significant. Uh, scholars debate as to you know, the exact significance of it. Uh, Part of it could be that he, some people would say that he, he was hiding, right? That it was supposed to be like a sneaky meeting. He's like, hey, I'll meet you at night. Ooh, right? When every sneaky meeting happens. Uh, and that, that's one idea, one interpretation. Then another is that uh, he was just simply looking for some, some time 
some significant, substantial amount of time that they can just speak uninterrupted. Where they, he knows that Jesus is available, where they can sit down, they, they can have a kind of a private, meaningful, deep conversation. Either way, uh, he wants to have a conversation with Christ. That's, that's what we see. And, and he's meeting with them at night. And when we see this kind of day and night, this light and dark show up in John, we're going to see it even throughout this chapter. But when we see it show up in this gospel Time and time again, John is actually, he, he creates this beautiful kind of thematic imagery, this thematic parallel regarding someone's intellectual or spiritual state. So I think in a lot of ways, what John is referring to is that Nicodemus is showing up at nighttime to have this private conversation. And it's not just their conversation that's happening in the dark. It, it's, it's Nicodemus's mind and his heart. He has his own darkness. He has his own confusion. And so he comes to Jesus at night, and he asks him a pointed question. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a leader or a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, I say this is a question, even though there is no question mark, uh, because essentially Nicodemus is setting Jesus up to explain himself. Right, so Nicodemus, he's been hearing about this Jesus of Nazareth. He knows he's been kind of causing some disruptions among the people. And he wants to figure out what's going on. And this is honestly a very admirable trait. This is a, this is a good characteristic for Nicodemus to have. That, that when he hears about Jesus and he's kind of confused about Jesus, he doesn't just dismiss him. Right? That's what a lot of the religious leaders at the time, a lot of the Pharisees did. They heard about Jesus. They, they knew a little bit about him. They saw what he was doing. And they were like, this, this dude's rubbish. Like, we got to get rid of this guy. When they saw him perform miraculous signs, they said, that's probably the work of Satan. They, they refused to acknowledge that Jesus could have actually something good and beneficial to offer. But Nicodemus was different. He heard about Jesus and he says, I'm going to step into this. Right? Even though I know so much, even though I'm so, you know, I'm scholarly, I'm, I'm a leader, people respect me. He doesn't just assume I've got everything figured out and I can reject anything else that comes in my path. Instead, no, he says, I'm, I'm open. And this is great. And honestly, I think this is the first question we should be asking ourselves. If we want to be a people who live with fewer regrets, if we want to be a people who are walking in confidence the life that God has called us to live, I think for the first question we have to ask is, are we open to correction? Are we a people who are passionate in pursuit of the Lord, but still at the same time persuadable? This is a, a, a pairing that, that our senior pastor, Brian Fisher, has, has talked to me about many, many times. Something that's stuck with me for years. That we should be a people, we should strive to be people. He always speaks so highly of our elder board because he talks about these, these incredible men who are passionate in their pursuit of truth, in the pursuit of knowing God and making God known, and yet are still persuadable, are willing to listen, are, are willing to hear. Are, are we a people who are willing to hear correction, to hear hard conversations from people around us? Or are we instead drifting towards, I think, our natural inclination, which is pride? Right? We live in a very academic culture. Uh, I've got two parents and two sisters, and all four of them have PhDs. They are all doctorate level super people. Uh, and I'm over here with a master's like a chump, right? Like that's just kind of my life. I'm the ignorant one of our family uh, because I haven't accomplished those same things as them. And, and you know, the reality is that even just our broader culture here at College Station, Brian, man, you've got a lot of highly educated people. I know in this room right now, 
there are some highly educated people. So there are some very accomplished people. But I think it's easy for us to maybe take some of those accomplishments that are good, that are awesome, that Paul says, hey, we should, we should do these things with excellence for the Lord to, to, to proclaim his glory and his work through us. It's easy for us to take those accomplishments and instead use them to leverage ourselves up, to puff ourselves up with our own knowledge. That's why I have this quote on my desk at eye level. I've had it for about five, six years on a sticky note. The author has been lost in the quarters of time, but it tells us that knowledge is proud that he's learned so much, but wisdom is humble that he knows no more. And man, that is, whew, that is truth. That wisdom would tell us that, man, there is so much yet that we do not understand. There's so much yet that we have not understood. One of my greatest takeaways that I ever got from seminary, from pursuing my master's, was that I, I realized, I began to realize how much I did not know that I did not know. How much I still don't know. It's crucial for us to be people who are open to correction, who are open to redirection. Right? Because if, if we're just closed off, then, I mean, we're, we're, we're fallible, right? Maybe the advice, maybe the correction that's coming from other people isn't always right, but neither are we. So how wise are we? How humble are we in receiving correction? Because Jesus is, is, I think, speaking into Nicodemus's life because Nicodemus had that openness. Because he was willing to be persuaded, Jesus is able to essentially give him the truth that Nicodemus is seeking. In verse 3, he says this, I tell you the solemn truth. He says, here it is. Unless a person is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter his mother's womb and be born a second time. Can he? Can he? No. No. He can't. Jesus tells him, you want the truth? You want the solution? You want to know what I'm all about? He says, this is what I'm all about. The second birth. Some translations would say to be born again. And the reason that there's a differing in the translation is because, well, it's from this Greek term, Greek term, anothen. And this term essentially is referring to uh, something coming from the beginning. And so it could be talking about, well, it's coming from a new beginning, right? So born again. Uh, It also could be saying it's coming from the ultimate beginning, the originator, the creator of all things being God. So in other words, born from above. Either way. What Jesus is saying is that what you have right now, the heritage that you're claiming, the birth that you're operating out of, the the origin, the point of origin that you're acknowledging says it's not enough. It's not going to work. And this is incredibly significant for Nicodemus because he was a Pharisee, right? He he traced his lineage back to Abraham and Jesus is saying that's that's not enough. I I know that you have these accomplishments. I know you've done these things. I know that you have this kind of family history, but it's simply not enough. You instead have to pursue the second birth. You have to experience this birth from above. And this is the foundation of our faith. Right? If, if we want to be followers of Jesus Christ, if we want to be a people who have relationship with the God of the universe, this is what has to define us. We have to be a people who are born again, who are born from above. And it's, it's something that the world at large does not understand. It's something that our works-based culture simply does not agree with. They say, no, like you, you make yourself who you want to be. But, but a believer would say, no, I'm, I am who God made me to be. And, and this is incredibly significant. And it confounds people time and time again. It's confused, it confused Nicodemus, right? And it's been confusing people for 
thousands of years. One of my favorite, uh, one of kind of my heroes from history uh, is a guy named George Whitfield. George Whitfield was an incredible orator, speaker, preacher, and God used him incredibly powerfully right around the turn uh, of the 19th century. And uh, he was essentially uh, this this man who who spoke just incredible truth, was an incredible student of the word, and and could present it in such a compelling manner that he was ministering to tens of thousands of people before that was ever a thing, right? Before you could set up a website and live stream your conferences, like he was reaching tens of thousands of people. And it was because God would supernaturally gift him. He would stand in front of crowds of tens of thousands of people. And this, there's no voice amplification, right? I would struggle, I think in this room, I don't know. I did junior high ministry. I could probably, you could probably all hear me if I really gave it my all without a mic. But beyond this room, probably not too far, George Whitfield would stand in front of crowds where the crowd would stretch for hundreds of yards. And they would hear him clearly speaking God's truth. And one of his incredible kind of facets to his ministry is that he struck up this pen pal relationship with Benjamin Franklin. And him and Ben Franklin would, would write back and forth. They had all these correspondences and there's just a lot of interesting stuff in, in those. But, but one of those moments is as they kind of got connected because they were both just sort of renowned people. I think Ben Franklin wrote to uh, George first, just kind of commending him and talking about him, uh, asking him about kind of what makes him tick. Uh, in one letter, George Whitfield's writing to Benjamin Franklin and he tells him, hey, I, I find that you grow more and more famous in the learned world. Right? Oh, wow, that's, that's awesome. Right? He says, man, you're, you're increasing in your renown. More and more people know about you. Why? Because, well, you've made such progress in investigating the mysteries of electricity. He says, man, you, you're doing all these amazing things. You're part of this kind of cool group. But now I humbly urge you to give diligent heed to the mystery of the new birth. Got him, George. Right? Cool little twist. He says, this is what you need. He says, I know that you're diving into these mysteries of our world. But, but I'd, I'd offer you an even greater mystery. He says, because this is the most important and interesting study. That when you master it, it will richly repay you for your pains. Thousands of years later, George Whitfield recognized, man, this is the question that needs to be answered. This is the solution that must be found. How, must, how can one person be born again? How can you experience this new birth? How can I have this new starting point? Because we need that. Jesus looked at Nicodemus and he says, look, here's the, here's the truth. Unless a person is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He's saying it's not enough to be born here. It's not enough to just experience birth for that first traumatic time. He says, you have to experience this spiritual birth. Literally, he's saying the born of water and the wind, pneuma, this Greek term. I like it more in the Hebrew. The Hebrew term is ruah. Just sounds good. Ruah. He's saying there's this spirit also used for wind of the Lord that has to be involved in bringing about your life. He says, because what is, born of the, what is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. So do not be amazed that I said to you, you must all be born from above. He says, you've got to experience this new birth that's only made possible by the work of the Lord. He says, it's not something that you can just, you know, decide to do. 
It's not just something that you can just make up your mind and make it happen, even though that's something we, we want to try. That's something that we want to do because we all recognize, man, my journey, my first step on a, on a journey is incredibly important, right? My first step is a foundational step. My first impression that I make, it's a very important moment. That's a very important experience for me to give to other people. My, my point of origin, the, my background, my history, that, that is going to be really powerful in influencing who I am and how I live. We all recognize that our birth influences our behavior. That's why when you, you know, if you go through premarital counseling here at Grace, man, one of the very first things that you're going to be talking about is, well, what was your home like? What were your parents like? What's your foundation, right? What's your background? When you are applying for a job, what do they want to know? They want to know, well, okay, well, what have you done? Where have you been? What have you accomplished? Like, what's, what's your origin point look like? What have, what have you done in those other organizations? Like, yeah, yeah, I, I love that you have dreams about what could be next, but what have, wh- where are you actually coming from? Right? This is a significant element of who we are, of, of our, our starting point. And, and it's something that we, a lot of times, want to maybe kind of push a reset on. Right? That we all reach points in life where we say, man, I want, I'm ready to kind of start over again. I saw this constantly uh, when I was starting college at Texas A&M University, a whoop, and I went to fish camp as all good incoming freshmen do. And when I was at fish camp, time and time and time and time again, I was hearing this idea, this, this, this philosophy of, man, college, it's new, right? It's different. You're a new, it's a new opportunity. Like you're going to step out. It's a new place. It's, 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 it's a chance to like reinvent yourself, to be a new person. They would say this over and over and over again. And it eventually culminated in this moment where my little small group, where there was like a, you're in this little discussion group of like four guys, four girls. The four guys of us, we, we went off with our leader at nighttime. So everyone's just feeling sneaky, right? But also like deep and philosophical. And we stand and we walk out into this grassy patch and we're next to a little pond. And, and the, the, our leader tells us, okay, guys, you just line up. Go ahead and line up. So we line up. And he walks by each of us. And, and to each of us, he gives us this one little stone, like a little pebble. He says, here, hold on to this. We're like, oh, okay. What next, right? <laughs> He's like, okay. He says, you see this stone? I'm like, yeah, yeah, for sure. He's like, look at it. Huh? He says, this is who you were. This is all that you've done. This is past Jacob. He's like, oh. Howdy, right? Like, <laughs> How's it going, right? He says, so this is every mistake you've made. He's like, this is every, this is every regret you have. This is all that shame. This is all that baggage. This is all that burden. This is everything that you used to be back in high school. Like, yeah, yeah, totally. It's like, so now take that rock. It says, and you throw it in the pond. Like, all right, yeah, 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 yeah. For sure, for sure, for sure. Weird, but okay. And so we do it. We, we just, we toss it out. And, and then, you know, that little stone just, boop. Oh, it's gone. And he just kind of watched us. Like, yeah, you guys feel it? Says, it's over. Says, you're in college now. We were like, wow. <laughs> you're right. So we went back to our camp room and everyone's like, wow, how'd it go? Jacob, what? I'm, no, it's Jake now, right? <laughs> I'm new. That, pond, that pebble is in the pond, right? 
And we felt it, man. We were like, yeah, this is going to be awesome. We're going to step into college. We're going to be new. We're going to make all these new decisions and rebrand and all this stuff. And surprisingly, what I found was that actually once I started college, once I started, you know, walking through freshman, you know, first year, uh, freshman year of college, first few weeks, second few weeks, third, you know, like as I'm going through, suddenly I'm realizing like, wait a minute, some of those same like problems and issues that I used to have, I still have. Like, wait, you mean like I still feel insecure about like how I'm, I am with like other people? Wait, you mean I'm, I'm still like afraid of being alone? Wait, like I'm still struggling with like anxiety. I'm still struggling with lust. I'm still struggling with all these issues that, that I thought, I thought I threw them in that pond, right? Like I thought, I thought it was over. I drowned those things. And we try this. But, but what Jesus is telling Nicodemus, he says, man, it's, it's not just a decision that you can make. It's a birth that you have to experience by the Spirit. It has to be the work of God in your life to transform who you are, to give you this new identity. This is what Peter refers to in one of his letters. He says, through these things that, that God has bestowed on us, his precious and most, significant, most magnificent promises, so that by means of what was promised to you, oh, sorry, so that by means of what was promised, you may become partakers of the divine nature after escaping the worldly corruption that is produced by evil desire. Peter says, look, you're going to desire, you're going to need a new nature. He says, you're going to need a divine nature. He says, that's one of the things that God wants to give you that, that is only possible through this new birth. You want to receive the promises that God has made of blessing, of life, of satisfaction, of joy. He says you have to walk in this divine nature. You have to experience this new birth. And it's only that birth that can transform your future behavior. He says you're going to continue to make the same mistakes if you're continuing to rely on your same old self. Paul talks about it as his old self. He says, man, I, I hate my old self. He says, I hate these old desires, these old inclinations, these old passions that I have. That have stuck with me, right? It's because we, we've been transformed and yet not fully. It's an already not yet. But God is saying, I, I want to give you this new birth. I want to give you this new life. And yet we, in the midst of that, that new opportunity, we, we still, we have a tendency to drift to those old habits. I can't tell you how many, how many college students I've sat down with who are just dumbfounded by the fact that they're still struggling now as a junior in college with the same issues they were struggling with as a junior in high school. And I have to tell them, it's because, yeah, you're in a new place, but you're the same person. You're the same person, just a new place. And those same problems are going to be carried with you. Because we need the work of the Lord to, to transform us, to renew our hearts, to renew our minds. God says, I want to perform this, this transformation in you. I want to perform this, what we call sanctification. It says, but in the midst of it, you're still going to fight them. Even as people who have put their trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. People who have said, yeah, Jesus stepped out of heaven and on earth to live the life, the perfect life that I couldn't live, to die the death that I deserve because of my mistakes, to rise again so that he would prove that, that he's worthy of my trust, that he's worthy of my faith. That if I call on his name, that sin and death and those things, they don't, hold, they don't have chains on me. They don't, they don't hold me bondage anymore. Even then, I'm going to have a tendency. There's going to be a part of me that wants to go to those old ways. Even when Israel was freed from captivity in Egypt, they said, man, at least when we were slaves, we had food when we wanted it, water when we wanted it. They looked back longingly at slavery. 
And this is going to be our inclination. It's what Peter goes on to describe, saying that it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn back from the holy commandment that had been delivered to them. He says, you know what? It's almost worse for the people who become believers, who know that there's a better way, who know there's a better truth, who see the path of righteousness and yet still turn back from, from it, who still, who still want to go back to those old ways. And then he quotes Proverbs, Proverbs 26. He says, it's their illustrations of this That a dog returns to its own vomit. A sow, after washing herself, wallows in the mire. Man, this is the reality of our existence. The brokenness of our lives. It's gross. Dog going to its vomit. Gross. That's not me. That's the Bible, right? God is saying, this is what it is for you. This is what I see when I see you going back to sin. He says, man, this is foolish. It's destructive. It's self-destructive. So Jesus is telling Nicodemus, he says, man, I I want you to recognize that there's this new birth that's available, but it's only a work of the Lord. You're not going to be able to do it on your own. And so that's why Jesus brings up an illustration a little bit further in their conversation in verse 14. He says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is telling him, look, you might remember that Israel was dying. They, they had sinned and they were being judged by the Lord. They were dying from poison. And God to, made a way for them to be healed. And it was only if they were to look, if they would just look by faith at this bronze serpent that Moses put up in the middle of the camp. That was how they would be healed. That's how they would find life. Jesus is saying, this is what's going to happen to the Son of Man. And he's using this, this Greek term that means to be lifted. And it's kind of this dual meaning where it's talking about, yeah, it's, it's, you're lifted up into a place of prominence, of visibility, almost of glory. But also it's a term that he uses for being crucified, being lifted up on a cross. Later in John, John chapter 12, he's going to talk about this in describing what's going to happen with him. And John's going to make an authorial note where he's going to say, yeah, Jesus, when he talks about being lifted up, it's because he's telling his disciples how he was going to die. Jesus is saying, this is the way that God loved the world. This is it. That he would give his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. This is the only way. It's not you pulling up by your bootstraps. It's not you tossing that pebble out into that pond. He says, this has to be something that is a work of God. That you're trusting in. That you're believing in. That it's not what you do. It's what God has done. One commentator puts it like this. He says, in the camp of Israel, the solution to the serpent problem was not in killing the serpents and making mess and pretending they weren't there, passing anti-serpent laws, climbing the pole. He says, this is the solution. It was looking by faith at the uplifted serpent. At the uplifted serpent. Jesus tells Nicodemus, look, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through him. So the one that believes in him is not condemned. It says you don't have to experience condemnation if you've trusted in the name of the one and only son. But the one who does not believe has been condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. He's saying, look, Nicodemus, you have to recognize that this isn't something you're going to be able to accomplish on your own. This isn't something you're going to be able to attain. It's not something that you do. It's something that God has done. It's not a box that you can check. 
It's a belief that you have to hold. It's a willingness to hand over your life, your guilt, your condemnation, your sin, your mistakes, your regrets, your shames. You hand them to the Lord and you trust that his grace is greater. But man, even though we've been given this promise, it's hard for us to remember and and hold it tightly to our hearts. It's hard for us to walk in the freedom that is offered to us. It's easy for us to forget to trust our Father. That's just, that's just how we naturally operate. Are we going to have to cut your leg off? No! Oh. Well, how are we going to make it feel better? God will heal it! Oh, okay. I told you many things about God. You won't listen to me about that. Right, let's pray and get out. <laughs> it's easy for us to forget that we can trust our Father. Uh, I don't know if I would put it that way, uh, but we forget, right? We forget. I see this in my home all the time. I, I try to give my children what they need when they need it, right? That's, that's like literally like one of the only things I do when I am home uh, is I just give them things that they need. And yet still, there are moments where they're running up and they're screaming and they're yelling. And they're just, I'm like, what? What's going on? What's going on? I'm like, let's slow down, right? Let's count to four. Like, let's, what's Daniel Tiger say? Like, let's, I don't know, be calm. Like, that's, and I slow them down. I'm like, what do you need? And they say, yogurt. I'm like, oh. Okay, you can have a yogurt, right? Like that's, that's fine. We forget, they forget that, that I want to bless them. I want to give them what they need. And they think that they have to do all these things and make this whole noise and make all this ruckus and do all these things and punch their brother so that they can get yogurt. I'm like, no, just trust me. Please trust me. Jesus told his followers, you don't have to worry like the world around you because you have a father in heaven who cares about you, who's going to give you what you need. Look at the flowers, look at the birds, look how provided, or look how well provided they are or how well God provides for them. He says, and you're so much more valuable than them. You're not always going to get what you want, but you'll receive what you need. It's true for all of us who've put our faith in Jesus Christ. We have a heavenly father. He says, I want to give you what you need. I want to provide for you the forgiveness that your mistakes requires. So bring me your guilt. Bring me your shame. Bring me your mistakes because I want to give you grace. We drift towards self-reliance. We think, no, I've got to fix my own problems. I've got to do all these things. I've got to make things right. And God's saying, "You, you don't. You can't. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you have to recognize that this this new life, it's not based on what you accomplish. It's based on what God has already done. So how do we move forward in that confidence? How do we stand on what Christ has accomplished while stepping into our broken lives? How do we move forward without holding on to the regrets of our past or the regrets that that could be brought about by future mistakes? Jesus wraps up their conversation, starting in verse 19, telling Nicodemus that this is the basis for judging, that the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. He says, this is the truth. All people everywhere have a tendency to love the darkness. Why? Because their deeds were evil. 
If we make a mistake, we want to hide it. We want to just sequester it away. We want to to turn all the lights off. We don't want anyone to see it. We know that we make mistakes. This is why you don't have to teach children to lie. Because they know, even at a young age, that they make mistakes, that they've done things that are wrong, and they want to hide it up. And so they begin hiding it up by making more mistakes, by just by lying on top of whatever they've done. The yogurt that they spilled. They say, man, I, I want to make sure that no one ever sees these, these faults that I have, this brokenness that I carry. Jesus is saying, this is the state, this is the natural drift of all people. For everyone who does evil deeds hates the light and does not come to the light so that their deeds will not be exposed. We want to hide our guilt and our shame. We don't want to come to the light of the world. We don't want to come to Jesus Christ. Because we're terrified of what his holiness will reveal. We're terrified of owning up to the mistakes that we've made. One commentator puts it like this. He says, it's not intellectual problems that keep people from trusting Christ. It's the moral and spiritual blindness that keeps them loving the darkness and hating the light. Man, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with students where we're starting off on maybe an intellectual issue, a question that they might have about scripture, about Jesus, about God, about whatever. And time and time again, I'll tell you the root of those questions, the root of those issues does not stay in the intellectual realm, does not stay in, in the, the you know, authenticity of the, the variability of scripture, scripture the, the, the reliability of, 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 of God's people, the, 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 the fact that a God can be good and all-powerful and yet still allow evil, right? We don't generally stay in those kind of intellectual, philosophical realms. Time and time again, the root of their issues comes down to this. Time and time again, I've seen where where suddenly the root of that conversation is they have sin that they cannot let go of. They've They've got shame that they absolutely cannot share. They've got an addiction that they can't shake. They've, they've, got, they've got issues with this or that. And man, time and time again, what we see is Jesus' words proved true. That many times we hate the light because we're afraid of, of the deeds, the actions, and the attitudes that it's going to reveal. Because every single one of us, man, we're guilty. But Jesus says it's the, the ones who practice truth, they come to the light. So that it may be plainly evident that his deeds have been done in God. See, this is what's incredible. Yeah, our guilt, it's universal. It's true of all people everywhere. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But here's what's incredible. As believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, our response can be unique. Our attitude can be different. So instead of seeing that guilt, seeing those mistakes, seeing those faults and failures, that brokenness, instead of taking it and hiding it up and trying to put it away in the dark, instead of just sort of living in that regret, what we have is an opportunity to bring it to the light. Jesus says you can bring it to the light and then you're going to see the work that God has done through it. See, we can come before our God knowing that he's forgiven us, knowing that Jesus Christ has already paid the debt that we owed, that he's already died the debt that we deserved. We can bring those, those faults and mistakes to him and we can trust that he's going to forgive us. And as I was preparing this week, I think that's, that's what I just kept coming back to is this, this reality that, man, I don't 
confess enough. I don't. I make plenty of mistakes. But I don't confess nearly as often as I should. I don't take those moments to come before my God and just authentically seek his forgiveness. Trusting that Jesus Christ, he, he died for those mistakes. Right? They're forgiven. But God has given us the practice of confession, not to bring us, not, not to solve our problems, but, but that, that act of confession, what it does is it brings closure many times to those old faults and failures. Where we come before the Lord, we say, God, I've, I've, missed, I've made mistakes, right? My guilt is there. But we trust that his grace is unchanged. We trust that his forgiveness is faithful. Because the reality is that we're going to continue making the wrong steps. We're going to continue making the same mistakes. So how do we live with fewer regrets? How do we live with less shame and guilt attached to those mistakes? We bring it to the light. We have people in our lives that, that we talk with, that we confess things, things with. We, we seek accountability. We, we, we seek the Lord we spend time with him saying, God, these, these are the things that I've done. God, I, I need your forgiveness for these elements. And, and as scripture says, we can trust as we confess our sins that he's faithful to forgive. And we can walk blamelessly, like Paul talks about in Philippians 2. And, and it's not blameless in the sense that we're perfect, right? The, the solution to living with fewer regrets is not just be perfect. The solution is to walk blamelessly, meaning that we are owning our mistakes. We own up to them. We admit them. We confess them to our God. And what would happen in our world? Imagine if the Christian church was known as a people who weren't perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but a people who owned up to their faults, who were quick to confess, who were quick to seek forgiveness, who were open to redirection, who were passionate but persuadable, who were accountable to one another, to seek to, to live lives that more glorify Christ. Not because that earns God's favor, but because it glorifies him to the world around them. And what if that was us? Well, this morning, I want us to wrap up a little bit differently than we normally do. A lot of times we kind of get to the end of a message and we, we pray, say, you know, God, like use these things, send us out. And, and that's good. Uh, but this morning, uh, what I really want us to do is to take a moment and genuinely confess. To really come before our God and, and seek conviction so that we can offer confession. So if you would, please join me in prayer. In coming before our Father, who's faithful to forgive. God, we are just grateful that you have given us an opportunity to talk to you. Lord, to be known by you. God, to learn about you. And the richness of the blessings that you offer us through Jesus Christ. Lord, what... What an amazing opportunity this is to speak to you, the creator of the universe, God, the origin of all things. And God, you, you want relationship with us. Lord, you love us more than we could ever love ourselves or even love another person. God, you have shown us this love by sending Jesus Christ to die for our sins. God, what an incredible proof of your affection. And Lord, we trust, we want to trust that we can bring you all of our mistakes, all of our guilt, all of our shame, 
that we can bring it to the light, that you'll search it out and that you'll still work in us, that you'll still work through us. That God, that you can take the most horrific of backgrounds, you can take the most horrific of attitudes and actions and God, and use them for good. Lord, you were able to use the murder of your son, Jesus Christ, God, to bring salvation to the world. So Lord, we trust that you can still use us as broken vessels to bring your glory to this world. So if you would, just take a moment right now and, and confess to the Lord. Say, God, maybe convict me. If, the, if something's not popping up to your mind, say, God, convict me of, of a mistake that I've made this week. Maybe it was a, a hurtful action or a word that I spoke. Maybe it was an attitude that, that no one really knew about. But ask the Lord to convict you of that misstep, to bring correction, loving correction. And then confess to him, say, God, I need your forgiveness. God, I want, I want you to work and to bring change in my life. So if you would, just take this moment to confess before your God. God, we thank you that we can trust the promise that there's no condemnation for those in Jesus Christ. That God, if we call upon the name of the one and only Son, that Lord, we are forgiven. That Lord, we are, we are adopted into your family. That those old habits, those old sins, those old regrets and, and failures, Lord, they, they don't own us. They don't define us. So God, we ask that we would be able to walk in this newness of life. The God, that we would have lives that, that point others to you. So God, we, we thank you for moments like this of clarity, of truth. Lord, we pray that you would send us out to be a people who bring that clarity, who bring that truth, who bring your love and your grace to every corner of this world. We pray these things in your will. Amen. All right, well, we love you guys, and we'll see you in a week.